Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Rapport Diamond podcast. In this episode, I got to tick off an item on my bucket list of people that I've wanted to interview for the longest time. For those very few of you who might not know, Matt Stella is the founder and chairman of one of the largest wholesale distributors of jewelry in the United States. That is his namesake, Stella. We look at the company as a barometer for how the jewelry market is doing, particularly as it is so well positioned to take the pulse of the independent jewelry sector. I always gain great insight from our conversations with our friends at Stella, but this was the first time I've spoken to Matt in person and he didn't disappoint. We spoke about his background, the company's growth, how it navigates crisis, the state of the jewelry market, its challenges and his expectations for the holiday season. So please enjoy my wide ranging conversation with Matt. Hi, Matt. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Finally, you've been on my wish list, let's say, for podcast guests for some time. I'm so glad to have you. And it's great to meet you as well. This is our first official meeting, I think, after all these years. So thank you for joining us. Oh, my goodness. It's my pleasure. I've been very excited to do this. And this should be a real fun hour. I hope so. And I have no doubt. Stella has gone through a few milestones recently, celebrating your 50th anniversary in unfortunate circumstances, I think. It was in 2020 during the COVID period, so that changed a lot of your plans, I believe. But I think it's a good way to start for those who have been under a rock for all these years and don't know much about uh, about you and your company. Maybe if you can give us a bit of background and how you got into the jewelry industry, how you made that start all those years ago. Actually, getting into the industry was by accident. I was a sophomore in high school dating back to 1968, and I ended up getting a job with a local jeweler, basically being the porter and runner, gift wrapper. And I became very good friends with the bench jeweler that was in the back of the store. And I worked afternoons after school and throughout the summers, both my sophomore, my junior, and my senior year in high school. And he taught me the trade of repairing jewelry, stone setting, sizing, polishing, etc. I think he realized that I was very mechanical, good eye-to-hand coordination, and we became very good friends. He became my mentor. My senior year in high school, interesting enough, with permission of the jewelry store owner, he and I opened a small trade shop repairing jewelry for the local jewelers in our area. And that's kind of really how I got my start. At the time that I was graduating from high school, my mentor passed away. And I had decided after dealing with many suppliers trying to get parts very quickly to do repairs on jewelry that I wanted to get into that business, the wholesale business of buying from manufacturers and selling to the repair shops, the local retail bench jewelers. And that lasted a short period of time, interesting enough. I think most importantly, when I announced to my parents that I was not going to go to college, I really never made good grades. I just loved working. I started buying from predominant vendors that were in New York, in Rhode Island, and in Massachusetts. And I would go on the road, pedal it out of literally the back of the, of the trunk of my car. And it was very interesting. And I think this is where my love came in for the independent jeweler, is that 
every jeweler that I would walk into. At that time, I was 18 years old, kind of wet behind the ears. They always looked at what I had to sell. So I rolled in these big cases. They would look at the parts and the pieces that I was peddling. And I think they always bought something from me, whether they needed it or not, but just wanted to help me start my business. Now, my dad was a dentist and he gave me a back room in one of his dental offices. And I immediately turned that into jewelry casting. And I started casting my own components, parts, pieces, and settings. And so in 1971 is where I really started to play with the idea of being able to be my manufacturer of my own product, realizing that the wholesale side of the business was difficult because it was so slow to come in, and yet I wanted to immediately deliver product. So from there, really, it was a great start over a wonderful you know, 52-year history now of listening to the jeweler of what they wanted, buying what we had to buy, manufacture whatever we possibly could, got out of the trunk of my car and started delivering U.S. mail. That was back in 1973. And then I'll just take a big jump forward. We were selling a lot of jewelers throughout the southern part of the United States, but the delivery by U.S. mail was a bit slow through the rest of the country. It would take three to five days. And that's when I met Freddie Smith, who is the founder and CEO of Federal Express. And he and I took a liking to each other. And I guaranteed that I would ship every package that a jeweler was being sent by Federal Express and one of those big boxes that they did not have to carry what I call the tackle boxes of componentries to show the jewelry industry from his side that just-in-time inventory of being able to order something one day, receive it the next day in order to be able to service their customers. So that was a real big hit, and that is really where we started broadening our sales throughout the entire United States. Major, major transition. 1984, we built our new manufacturing facility, same town, Lafayette. We built about 30,000 square feet, thinking that that would last us for decades. And at the end of the day, we've had seven expansions and we're about 650,000 square feet today in our hometown, Lafayette. That's amazing. I was going to ask what you saw at that time that was missing in the jewelry industry, but it sounds like you just simply grew organically, that you knew what service you wanted to provide. You start, you were building relationships in the industry and those strengthened over time and that sort of enabled your growth. Is that a fair assessment? Kind of. I really had no idea what I was doing. Very little jewelry experience other than knowing how to repair jewelry. Obviously, I had no business experience coming out of high school with this thing. And so I learned to listen very carefully to my customers, and they always were very good in giving me advice. So I did what they told me to do. I carried products which they thought they would like. And so it was really more of learning by literally the moments of what jewelers were telling me of what they wanted. It was very difficult early on because I really had no capital. You know, as I said, my dad was a dentist. I had five brothers and sisters. We were kind of a low to middle income. I think my parents had saved about $5,000 at the time for my college education. Of course, I immediately turned that you know, into inventory to sell. 
And so I literally had to grow by, you know, every penny putting back into the business. And I think, you know, one of the parts of success was the fact that I didn't know what I was doing, which makes you very humble. And I was so appreciative of the independent jeweler giving me the time of day, wanting to see me succeed. And I think that that was really the secret and the excitement of being able to grow the business. Interesting enough, as I said, the predominant states that were selling me the product, I really felt that every time that I would call or place an order, it was like I was disturbing them. It was like, you know, what are you calling me for? Uh, You know, I'd ask when I could get delivery. How much did it cost? I was on a tight budget. And they were pretty blatant about it. So I realized, you know, that what I needed to do is to be, you know, to perform great customer service. And even in those days of just saying, you know, thank you for calling Stellar. Thank you for your order. It will go out today or whatever day that we knew that it was going to be shipped was definitely revolutionary in the parts business in the United States. And I think that that was where my attraction was to many jewelers throughout the country is we were finite. We committed to what we were, you know, had promised and they received it very quickly. So we were really kind of like the Amazon of the jewelry industry early on before Amazon was ever thought of. Right. But you didn't expand to other products then, or maybe not. (laughs) For the industry, it's a good thing. But a few things stick out for me in your descriptions and your stories. The first is that my father was also a dentist. And as I've come into the trade, I, I think of the tools that are used, and there is a technical aspect of it that is kind of familiar, that kind of resonates with me having grown up in his dental surgery. So I appreciate that imagery that you've that you've provided. The second and probably more important aspect is that you were able to to foresee that just-in-time inventory aspect, that if you could improve efficiencies in the supply chain, that would give you an added value. And I think that that should resonate in today's market very strongly as well. How have you managed to maintain that philosophy or that goal in the just-in-time inventory story as we've moved online, as shipment has become more efficient and maybe more challenging at times as the supply chain has shown over the last year? Well, it's very interesting. You know, we feel like often we are the back door of most every jeweler in America. And of course, that takes inventory. So to be able to manufacture inventory quickly and minimally, I mean, God doesn't have enough gold in order to carry everything every jeweler would want to have. But we had to manufacture very, very quickly. So we got really good at being able to carry a minimal inventory, but be able to manufacture literally within 24 to 36 hours of either refilling the inventory on the shelf or filling a large order that a jeweler may want. So it really is kind of a magical process of not having too much, but having enough to be able to satisfy, you know, the customer's request and need. It's interesting today, you know, as we move forward now 52 years, since our 50th anniversary was in 2000, that we carry about 6 million SKUs of product 
But of those products, we have a 1.7 trillion different ways the customer can get it. Now, that has to be manufactured. But when you look at now today, the jewelers are requiring finger size, different carrots and colors, different metals, whether it's gold or alloy, platinum, 18, even 24 carat, any way they want it, any center stone, any side stones. And we have those iterations in profiles in order to be able to manufacture that product very quickly for the jeweler. About 12 years ago, you know, we were selling just what we had out of a catalog and the jeweler would have to modify what they need. Today, you know, it's very different is that the jeweler wants what they want and not something that they would have to accommodate differently to get what the consumer wanted. So I think this is probably the largest change in the industry, and certainly that has helped with CAD CAM and being able to design many different ways of every style in order to be able to satisfy the customer's needs. Yeah, that is very interesting. It sounds that, that the market shifted from a supply model to responding to demand more heavily. If I'm interpreting your explanation correct, at, at least on the on the jewelry side, that the jewelers are demanding what they want, not what's available in the supply side. Well, it's actually a combination of both things. So the basic products, you know, those many millions of pieces that are standardized, whether they want a mounting, whether they want a solitaire diamond ring or or pair of diamond earrings or whatever, the bread and butter product of the jewelry industry, whether it's in the back of the store or front of the store, they literally want overnight. So you have to carry that basic inventory. And that has never changed in the 52 years of business. What has changed is anything we have, we can modify very quickly for the jeweler in order to accommodate what they need. So many of them don't have a bench jeweler. And so they depend totally on us for modifying a style. And today, you know, very big in the marketplace, the customization and personalization of jewelry, we can do all of those things. So if a customer comes into a store, into an independent jeweler, and the jeweler can offer that customization based on Stuller's models, essentially, and say, you know, we want to help you design that piece of jewelry, that ring, that engagement ring, and they would bring Stuller into the picture to enable that. Well, Avi, it's not quite that simple. You know, if it could be that way, that would be great. It would certainly simplify our lives. Really what happens is you got to be able to do business with the jeweler in the way they want to do it. So many times, you know, what we call the napkin sketch, modifying a picture or a, a photograph that the consumer saw that they liked, all of those things can be truly customized without any of our models or our designs. And then, you know, on our website, you know, we have this 3C process where many of our models on the website don't need any programming or anything else. You can change colors and finger size. You can modify the center stone to any shape, to any size. And they can do that, you know, right off the bat, off of their iPhone or off of their laptop or desktop. And then, you know, we also sell really very complicated software two particular types of products, one we call Matrix Gold, which you can manufacture, you can design in the store or with our assistance that you may want. 
It does not have to be one of our styles. Or you can use what we call counter sketch. So it's very quick. It's very easy. Runs off of our software and programming where they can use our designs and styles to change it in any way a customer may want. And you can do it over the counter and very easily. And a true custom piece can be designed and produced and sold to the consumer over the counter literally within 10 to 15 minutes. Right. Okay, so that makes better sense, I think. And and I would imagine that would have been a big challenge for a company of your size as that customization and personalization trend really took hold over the last decade, I would say. Well, you know, in years past, it was funny that consumers wanted something that everybody else had. Today, consumers want something that is unique and different, something that they have been able to help design in their thoughts, even possibly, you know, repurposing an old piece of jewelry or their grandmother's stone, and then to be able to create something, you know, of that nature. It's just important that you really can't tell the jeweler how they need to do business. You just got to be able to give them the tools, listen to what they want, and to be able to do it and hitting the easy button. Mm. When you mentioned the individual need of, of the consumer today, social media comes to, you know, automatically comes to mind because that's forcing everyone to try and stick out as much as possible and show their uniqueness. And jewelry, I think, is a tool that can be used to express one's individuality. And so how has Stella navigated that landscape? I know you're B2B, essentially, but you clearly need to respond to the consumer trends that are taking shape. And I'm wondering, I think COVID may have accelerated that need for individuality in our society. And I'm wondering what the discussion was within the, within the Stella entity and behind closed doors, if you were discussing and, and observing these trends and, and wondering how you, you might respond to them if you needed to at all. Well, indeed we did. I would like a little clarification since I think jewelers are going to be listening to this podcast. We are B2B only. We do not sell consumers. What we want to be is an asset to the jewelry industry and being able to have them supply products to the consumer, and we supply strictly to the stores, other wholesalers, manufacturers, and whatever, but only in the industry. So in answering your question, oh my goodness, you know, COVID was amazing in so many different ways, from horrible to great. And I don't want to belittle COVID at all when I talk about the great things, you know, of what we saw out of COVID, what the industry saw out of COVID. Many people died. Many people suffered. So many, including myself, were sick by it. And so you got to take that very seriously. However, on the positive side, I would say COVID was the silver lining to the jewelry industry in so many ways. Certainly for Stoller, we did extraordinarily well. We grew our business. We took market share in the most difficult of times because we never knew who was going to be able to come to work. We had strict protocol and policy, you know, that if you thought you were sick, if you had a family member, you know, that was sick, we just would not allow them into the building. We were fogging the hallways and bathrooms. We were requiring people to wash their hands, separation of workspaces, you know, and I would say every day was a different business model. Every day, no matter how you planned it the previous day, you had to replan it all over again. You did not know what your labor force was going to be. You did not know what the supply chain issues were going to be. It was the most difficult 
business times in my life of trying to figure out, you know, how to keep, you know, the plane flying while we were doing, you know, redesign literally every day. For the industry, I think what was great for the retail jeweler was that there was such demand that they sold so much of their old inventory. And so it really was a great way to recapitalize in the whole industry a lot more money. And it got rid of a lot of inventory. They made good profits. And it was really a welcoming time for what COVID at the end of the day brought us from selling jewelry. Well, I, th- I mean, we, we certainly saw that across the board in the industry, in our coverage of the diamond market, there was that sense that it allowed the midstream's inventory baggage to rebalance and the industries, the trade seemed to have come out of COVID in healthier market conditions and also having profited very nicely in 2021. There was that great recovery, which as you alluded to, you know, stemmed from retail. But then, but then moving into 2022, the environment has changed again. I wonder how you're seeing the current market environment. What is the pulse of the of the U.S.? Well, I can pretty well define that. I think quickly. One, I think you know we're still enjoying the benefits that we saw in 20 and 21. People have leaner inventories. They've got more cash, obviously, to either take out of their business or to be able to build new inventory to attract customers. So we never want to forget how great the market was for us in these last two years. For 2022, it's been very interesting. Certainly, you know, the financial reporting that it was extremely strong growth over 21. And certainly having growth over 21 was fabulous because 21 was a really great year. And that tended to start slowing down this summer. And I believe today, jewelers are still exceeding sales from last year, which was a great year. Or they're close to being flat, which is still great. I believe, you know, the jewelers from us talking to them every single day at the trade shows, I would say they're cautiously optimistic because they hear of all the financial turmoil and the increase of cost to the consumer with inflation. And jewelry is, I would say, somewhat of a luxury item, but still people are going to celebrate their events. People are still going to be getting married, and they're still going to celebrate that with jewelry. So it may just be different types of products or different types of price points, But I really forecast a balance of the year to be minimally flat to last year, which I think is great news. And certainly for the aggressive jeweler, I think that there's plenty of room to continue to grow their businesses, such as what we believe here at Stellar. Right. I agree. I think if the industry can match 2021, it'll be a great success and really create a platform from which to grow further in the years to come. But, um, you know, when there is a, a major global crisis or event, such as we saw in 2008 with the financial crisis, and then again during COVID, there is a natural tendency for jewelers to look at the inventory and be much more cautious in their inventory management. And my sense is that this time it's a little longer lasting, that with the, with the capabilities that we've now seen through online trading with, with even more just-in-time inventory supply, that jewelers don't need to hold as much inventory as they used to. And 
I'm, I'm wondering how that might affect the supply chain within the jewelry market. If that's something that you're noticing, that jewelers, you know, for example, are taking more goods on memo in the diamond trade, they want to mitigate that risk of holding too much stock in their back rooms. Well, you just threw a whole lot of questions at me, and I'm trying to figure out which way I'm going to tackle that. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) That is absolutely not a problem. I'm not sure where I'll even start with this, but certainly jewelers are more dependent today than ever before on just-in-time. Carrying less product in the cases is no different than any other luxury product on the planet. Today, a consumer doesn't want to come in and see a hundred rings in a case. You know, if you go into any other luxury type of product, you know, they're showing few pieces. They present it extraordinarily well. They create a, a wonderful attraction to it. And yeah, they can offer other things that are under the shelf or in the back storeroom. But I think it's important to really highlight, you know, the beauty of jewelry and, and not cluster it up with too much product. So today, I don't think the jeweler needs to carry the inventory levels that they once did. And so if you're having you know, a diamond ring and you're showing one carat or five carat, but they want it in a different color mounting or they want a different quality for a price point issue, all of that can, be, you know, can come in literally within the day overnight or the matter of a couple of days. And then they remake an appointment to be able to show the product that they don't own. So that really creates an amazing profitability for the jeweler of not having to have as much inventory and yet still have more sell-through, if you will, of other people's products. Memo, you know, is a difficult thing to manage, particularly for companies like us, you know, where we're known to be able to ship overnight. It's difficult to have your inventory in a whole bunch of jewelry stores, you know, and you can't ship it from the jewelry store to another jewelry store. We've got to get it back. We've got to inspect it. Got to be sure it's exactly what it is, that it's clean, a fresh paper. Memo does present a problem from the wholesale side, but it certainly is very beneficial, you know, to the jeweler. Today, you know, one of our biggest issues that we've had where we could depend on Federal Express and UPS, our overnight shippers here in America anyway, that they were great. If they were going to ship it overnight or the next afternoon or a two-day delivery, they were there on time all the time. And unfortunately, they're dealing with the labor issues as we all are. It's hard to get committed, dedicated labor, not sure who's going to show up for work. And their delivery has not been as good as it has been in the past. And then we talk about this real unfortunate, nasty, bad word of crime. We lose more packages today, you know, in shipping than we've ever done before. And it's just the way it is today. If we're not prosecuting crime, if people have no consequence in stealing and can get away with it, then you have more of it. And certainly we've seen a lot of that, you know, in the delivery process. So that has been, I would say, a negative in regards to the overnight delivery. And yet when they don't receive it the next day, you know, we either ship another package, you know, or we run it down, find out where it is and to give them an update of when they're going to get it. You know, but we feel here at Stellar, it's our responsibility, not only to take the order and get it out quickly, but to be sure that they're getting it in their front door. So we follow those packages all the way, make a commitment to, you know, what we're telling them. 
Right. I think you answered all my questions, which were, my intention was for it to be one question, let's say, but you gave a really extensive answer and I appreciate that. My, my follow-up is if, as jewelers have reduced their inventory needs, that obviously then requires companies like Styler to have more inventory. Is that a challenge that you're facing in this current market environment to source the right inventory? Sort of Stella as a buyer must be quite a challenge in the current market environment. You know, it's funny when you talk about that because it seems like in the jewelry industry, at least my experience of it, it has been a challenge every single year. You know, there there is something going on that that creates a problem. I do believe, you know, in customers that are more dependent on just-in-time inventory is really a great thing for us. That's been our model since day one. And so we like having to deal with those problems. So, you know, we've had to extend our work hours. You know, we have multiple manufacturing facilities to ensure that we can be dependable and reliable no matter what happens. You know, we get these infrequent things like hurricanes or tornadoes or terrible weather. We had to close last year for a day because we had ice on the roads and, you know, our employees could not get to work. There is always some kind of obstacle in being able to deliver just in time. And I don't blame them. You know, the jeweler really doesn't care what our issues or problems are at the moment. They're interested in getting the product and making the sale, you know, and then moving on to the next so we try to not allow our problems to be their problems. That's easier said than done, but we certainly do the best we can for it. So certainly extending the hours, being able to manufacture faster, quicker, we're definitely more into robotics and process and systems in order to be able to what I call when you sell an item, ring the bell. You know, you got to get it back in the stock to being sure you can deliver it the next day again. And it takes good engineering. It takes a lot of capital expenditures. We've spent more money over the last couple of years, which is slow to come, by the way, you know, with new equipment, whether it's robotics, you know, or mills or what have you. But everything is continuing to push a tighter time frame of being able to get it out to the jeweler quickly. And then we're working very, very closely with our vendors. We prepay stuff. We do whatever we possibly can for the vendor to look at us as they're a primary customer that they will take care of us and our needs. Most of the jewelry, we try to manufacture ourselves just for the mere fact that we can control it. We tell a customer something, you know, we can work overtime, we can do whatever we need to make it happen. There is some product, certainly very heavy, small diamond intensive that we probably want to make elsewhere. And that has been a problem with deliveries through customs. The government is very slow right now. And so you have to look at all of these issues and deal with them one day at a time. It's challenging, but I tell you, it's fun. And it's an amazing experience of what we've been going through over the last two and a half years as an industry. And I think we're far better off of being able to increase the full GDP of our industry, you know, by close to $38 billion. That's amazing. Wow, it is amazing. And I can see you relish the challenge as well, just in your answer and your tone as well. So it's really nice to see. I would like to change topic just briefly and touch on some of the trends that I'm observing in the market. 
that are that we tend to talk about within the trade. But then there's also a sense that the further down the distribution chain, it's not as important, you know, reaching the consumer. And the first is environmental awareness, that it really has emerged as a core theme, I think, in our editorial, that more companies are talking about the environmental impact that their product is having and responding to consumer awareness about these issues. So that's the first I'd like to hear your take on, and then we'll get to the others before I ask too many questions in one. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. It's easier for me to answer your questions. You're throwing one at a time to me. But I would say, you know, on the environmental awareness, under no circumstance, it's a trend. This is, you know, something that's going to be here for a very long time, you know, if we could use the word ever. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It is certainly, you know, more difficult, particularly as a manufacturer. But the fact of the matter is, you know, people are so much more sensitive, you know, to our mother earth. They care. They ask the questions. And we need to be sure that we're giving them what they want. I never thought that we would ever be only selling recycled metal, trying to minimize, or I would say eliminate mining. And there certainly is enough gold to go around in the world already. But that's very popular, probably the most popular question. You know, certainly everything from managing your trash, your garbage, to water, to the air, ventilations, and certainly all of that is good for the health of the associate, the employee. But environmental awareness is here to stay. And I think it's one of the greatest things that not only the jewelry industry, but the world is doing. Well, my second question then is kind of related because it also refers to the responsible sourcing aspect of the industry. And that is the ability to trace product from sort of mine to market as we as brands want to give their assurance that their product fits into their brand messaging and fits into their values. And so firstly, are you seeing that among, is that something that independent jewelers in the United States are aware of and are demanding from you? And then how do you accommodate that? Is that a real challenge that you're facing at the moment? I would love to say absolutely, and everybody is asking that and needs those insurances, but I won't go quite that far. I will say most are. You know, and we talk about the you know diamond industry right now with the war that is going on and not wanting to get the normal large supply of diamonds coming out of Russia. And yet it gets diverted here and there, you know, and some customers absolutely will not allow anything coming out of Russia. And then how do you do that? Because there is ways to be able to whether it's accidentally or on purpose of changing rough from its origins. But I think for the most part, you know, I would say not the most part. Everybody is concerned about this war and where does that take us, you know, to the rest of the world of other territory grabs and possibly another world war, which would be God forbid. But when you get culprits, you know, that are doing what Russia has done, you need to try to penalize them as much as you possibly can. So from a jewelry industry perspective, from a consumer perspective, it's very important that you're not being able to buy product of where it's being sourced, whether it's from war, whether it's child labor, whether it's environmentally not sound. And those things, I think, really are gaining great momentum 
And this is just something that we're going to have to deal with in a pleasurable way for many years to come. Today, as Stellar as many other vendors, we need to certify what we say. We get audited. We pay for these audits to ensure that we're doing the right things, that we can give the guarantees to our jewelers absolutely from a third party of verifying what we're saying is true. And I think that those things are very, very important to really be a legitimate company going into the future. It's mandatory. Thank you for that. And you actually covered the third trend or third topic that I was going to bring up, and that was the supply issues relating to Russia. As you say, it's just something that the market is needing to deal with. Do you think there will be this sort of clear bifurcation of supply in the diamond market between responsibly sourced and not responsibly sourced? I would say, I would love to say yes, but I can't go that far. You know, this is the first issue in regards to war. Certainly, we've had the issues with other problems and and responsible sourcing. And I'm sure we'll probably have, unfortunately, wars in the future that will have to deal with the same thing. It's just the fact that Russia, you know, had such a large supply of diamond rough into the marketplace, or I should say even polished diamonds. And so it really, you know, has affected the industry and being able to to get what consumers are demanding. But I think it has to be enforced. I think it's the right thing to do. And I think for the future, you know, who knows what happens next month, next year. It's just important that if all of us in the industry can say, let's do the right thing and not just about profitability, we'll be a far better industry in the future. And I also say it's better for us to police it ourselves as an industry rather than trying to get government involvement in it, which always creates huge amounts of bureaucracy. So we've got to keep our act clean. We've got to get away purely about the profitability of the business and simply in all of our issues and all of the issues in the future of just doing the right thing. And sometimes it's tough. Sometimes you got to grunt through it. It'll cost you money. It'll mess up your business plans, but you got to do what is right and nothing less. Right. And I think that would extend to geopolitical issues as well as social issues such as environmental awareness, etc. So thank you for that extensive answer. I appreciate it. Matt, before we close, I want to ask you sort of a quick round of rapid fire questions, if you will. Um, you might be tempted to extend your answer, but I was just wondering, firstly, you know, what, what are you excited about at Stella for the year to come for, uh, and for the industry and beyond? One, I'm very excited about the trends. All things lab-grown we're talking about, uh, I think it's great for the industry, not only for center stones, but for everything. I would say all things chain. Chain is so strong today. Women wearing multiple pieces at one time. Today, men are wearing chain. I mean, we're back to the late 70s and 80s. This is phenomenal trend. And then, of course, I think a trend, you know, that'll burn out in a year or two, but it's been very good today. Again, it's chain, but permanent jewelry. Really, really cool. I have so many follow-up questions to all that. I have to follow up on one of those points, and that is on the lab grown. And how is it positive for, for the industry? Because it's quite a controversial topic in the market, and it has been for some time. Well, you know, doing this podcast with Rappaport, I purposefully mentioned lab grown first because it is so controversial. But I truly believe that the best thing any industry can do is offer choice on anything. So if you take, for example, car dealers, what do car dealers do? They all gather together, you know, in one spot geographically. Hardware stores, they all want to gather together. They all offering different product. 
and it really creates larger demand for their products by larger selections. Well, that's kind of a long way around to getting the diamonds. I love the idea of being able to have lab grown. I think it brings a different market. I think it brings a price that is lower. It gives the consumer a choice. And we really haven't had that in the natural diamond market for all of these years. Now, lab grown certainly isn't new, but it is new today comparatively to the past of an offering and giving the consumer what they want. So today, lab-grown gives choice, I think is good for the industry, as long as it's, you know, taught to the consumer uh, of exactly what lab-grown is, what are the differences, don't talk about value or anything else, but I think it's great for the diamond industry and the jewelry industry overall. We need more people wearing diamonds, period, and whether it's natural or whether it's lab-grown, and they will differentiate themselves appropriately, I think we will sell more diamonds overall. And to date, we have seen that, that selling more lab-grown has really helped the natural diamond market. And I don't see any difference in the future. I think a lot of people will appreciate your qualifying that because last year we did see that sort of one plus one equal three when it comes to lab-grown and natural. But there is a lot of question because last year was an anomaly year, you know, through the recovery from COVID, if that momentum would continue. And secondly, because Stella was, to my recollection, one of the first sort of major big names to embrace lab-grown. And I think it's nice to hear your, your reasoning behind it and that, um, and that that hasn't changed. I think, you, I think it must have been at least five years ago that, um, that Stella went into lab-grown. Well, certainly we were an early adopter, not only on lab-grown, but all other white stones. So I can remember, you know, when CZ came out, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was very popular. The YAG, every white stone that comes along, we like to offer it, and we like to offer it in how they want it set and in the type of mounting they want. And it, it really is about selling more jewelry to more people. Some people just can't afford a diamond. Some people can afford, want a bigger diamond, but they can't afford the natural, so they go to the lab-grown. I think it's the best thing that we can ever do to the consuming public is to be able to offer them choice and to be able to handle price points of where all people can wear more diamond jewelry, not less. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Matt, before, just a final question before we close up. And thank you so much for your time and your candidness. It's been a real privilege for me and I think for our listeners as well. But do you have any predictions or expectations for the rest of this year? How do you see the jewelry markets and performing over the fourth quarter and, and also into 2023? Well, it's difficult to talk about 23, but I will say this year, uh, hearing from our customers, I think you know we will have flat to slight growth over 2021, and that is a banner year. So let's celebrate and let's enjoy it, and let's not become pessimistic that because of all these issues that we hear every single day and the threat or whether we're in recession or getting ready to go into recession, it really doesn't matter. 
we can talk ourselves into negativity and not carrying the right product, not marketing or advertising correctly, being pessimistic to the consumer, we can talk ourselves into disaster. So we have to stay positive. We have to be aggressive. Yes, we have to be wise and smart, but I believe we will have a great year for 2023. Same advice. On the other hand, there will be new things that we need to deal with. Fair enough. And I think that's a great message to end off on an optimistic note. Matt, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I look forward to meeting you officially in person sometime soon. And again, thank you so much. Well, uh, before we sign off on this thing, you had asked me a question earlier that I really wanted to respond to. And I know we're pushing an hour in about another minute or two. And your question was, is there anything else you'd like to share or convey? So just just a few moments on that. It is so important in this world today that we have kindness to each other. And often with the social media and not talking face-to-face, people can become ugly or brutal or not so nice. And so I really convey particularly you know, to jewelry that is so dear that we should treat everybody, no matter whether it's in our business or outside of our business, with love and compassion and just be kind. And so I just wanted to close on that. We'd love to make our world a better world. Well, you've kind of ended the podcast on the way you began it because you told the story of jewelers sort of inviting you as a newcomer into the industry and sort of really giving you the support and encouragement that you need. And I think that's one way that we can sort of pay it forward and express our kindness within the industry is through the education that I know Stella is very involved in and empowering young people to come into the industry and express their individuality. Ah, it's a wonderful business. Listen, Avi, thank you so much for having me on this morning. I've so thoroughly enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rathport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on diamonds.net. Follow Rapport Group on Instagram and follow Rapport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.